0: I'm Laura Green. Welcome to the Sapphic Book Review Podcast, the show that brings you the best in Sapphic fiction. Join me as I chat with authors, narrators, and friends who share my love for the genre. You will learn things you didn't know about your favorites and get some suggestions for your next read. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe. Welcome to the Sapphic Book Review Podcast. The word legend is often overused, but in the case of today's guest, it seems inadequate. Catherine V. Forrest, welcome and thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Laura. The year was 1957, and you happen upon Ann Bannon's Odd Girl Out in Detroit, Michigan. What did that moment mean to 18-year-old Catherine V. Forrest? It's such a wonderful question
1: and such an easy question to answer. It absolutely opened the world to me. I've written uh, about that experience in a preface that I wrote for Lesbian Pulp Fiction. It was an anthology of work from 1960 to 1975 that I put together. Oh, about 20 or so years ago, it was a collection of excerpts from some of our novels of that period. And I talked about that moment, and I described that book as necessary to me as air. And it literally did. It brought oxygen into my life because, you know, it almost didn't matter what was in the book. What it told me was that I was not alone. And that's most everybody of my generation. That was really how you felt. Uh, it was a wonderful divide and conquer strategy from the terms of the culture at large, and um, we did. We felt isolated. We felt to say less than is to put it mildly, because you know, I mean, we were criminals. Uh, we were being thrown out of our houses, our families, our jobs. You know, the military, uh, kind of every aspect of life. So to find a book like this, and I could tell by the cover, I just knew from the cover what it was. So it told me that there were other people like me. And and as I say, you know, that was the, the thing about growing up in the 40s and 50s is that there were no images of ourselves in print other than pathology that, you know, we were written up in medical journals and things like that. So I've told Anne Bannon personally that uh, that novel saved my life, uh, and her books did that for, I'm sure, a good many of us. The other thing that her book, if I could just talk about Anne for a little Absolutely. bit, because her books were glorious, so crucial. Uh, there were five of them, the People Brinker series, and they told us who some of us were, how some of us lived. They told us about this incredible mecca known as Greenwich Village, Uh, It told us that we had a community of sorts, and they gave us images of ourselves in print. I mean, obviously, Anne's books weren't the only ones out there, but um, it was the golden era of Pulp Fiction. So, you know, you could find them in drugstores. They were very widespread in terms of availability. So anyway, that got me started, and as a writer, of course, you know, it told me, too, that I could actually write about this, you know? I mean, she was my first kind of living example.
0: I think it's something people like me, we can't really understand because we have such access now. We have Bella, we have Bold Strokes, we have Ilva, we have Bywater, we have all of these places where we can get books.
1: It's a cornucopia. It's been wonderful to see. I'm glad I've lived long enough to see uh, such a flowering of lesbian literature and in so many dimensions. So, yeah, it's wonderful. It is.
0: You have said of Curious Wine, I have perhaps written better novels in the years since, but none I will ever love more than this book in which I claim my identity, found my truth, my integrity, my pride, my voice, and my future. Many readers felt the same, and one of the reasons was that you didn't write kiss-kiss-fade-to-black sex scenes. You showed two women enjoying each other sexually in a way many hadn't read before. Was this as therapeutic for you as it was for many who've read it?
1: I guess it was. Uh, it was certainly my coming out novel, in many respects. I <laughs> I like to describe my coming out process as being kind of like shot from a cannon <laughs> <laughs> with that book. But uh, I had read uh, everything that I could get my hands on, like so many of us. Uh, some of it was word of mouth, some of it was, you know, we got clues. One book would give us a clue Anyway, I I just read everything that I could find. And there was nothing out there to me that conveyed just how beautiful women are together. And, uh, you know, that was really all I wanted to do with that book. I've never had a working circumstance before or since with that novel. It took me about nine months to write. And the circumstance in my life was that I didn't have anything exterior I mean, I was completely wrapped up in the novel for that length of time. And I think what makes that novel, what gives that novel, I don't know, kind of a special something is that it has a tone. And as a writer, that's probably the hardest thing to maintain because, you know, you work on a book, life interrupts, you come back to the book, life interrupts, and the tone is the easiest thing to lose and the hardest thing to kind of retain. In terms of the craft. Uh, and so I just spent night and day with those two women. And it was, I've described the experience of writing it, that it kind of came out of me like a song. And that's about the best way that I could describe it. And, you know, I just kind of wrote the book that I saw that I felt I wrote the book I wanted to read. <laughs> and I guess I was surprised as anyone that it was kind of celebrated for its candor. But it is who and how and what we are
0: exactly? It sure is. And if I had to spend time day and night with somebody, Lane Christensen, not a bad choice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've spent time in love with both of those women in different ways. Anyway, it's a it's a very very special book to me, and just the fact that it's had the impact that it's had and continues to to this day is just marvelous. Yes, it so.
0: absolutely is. Many of your books were published by NIAID Press the importance of which can't be overstated in the history of the genre. Give the readers a brief history of the first publisher dedicated to our books.
1: Well, gosh, what a story that is. Um, The press began with uh, Anita Marchand and her partner. And Anita Marchand was a writer in her own guard. And so the press started in partnership with Barbara Greer and Donna McBride, you know, publishing those books. I met Barbara Greer in... Los Angeles. I met her in 1982. I met her at Sisterhood Bookstore on Westwood Boulevard in LA, and uh, she was appearing there with Sheila Ortiz Taylor. And uh, forgive me if I'm having trouble with names, titles, things like that. This is more and more happening at kind of this particular time of my life. Anyway, I went there to meet Sheila Taylor and get her book signed, which I thought was an absolutely wonderful book. And much to my surprise, Barbara was there with her. And so after uh, Sheila had done her reading and answered questions, and Barbara got up and talked about Nia Press. And so I went up to her after everybody had pretty much gone, and I just introduced myself and said, I have this novel. And <laughs> I've told the story so many times. She just looked at me as only Barbara Greer could, and she says, tell me. Does anything happen in this novel? (laughs) Uh, Like a publisher who has been approached who knows how many times. So she said that uh, she on their way up north, up to uh, the Northwest for a Women in Print conference in 1982. And she said, you know, send me the book, give me about six weeks and then send me the novel. That's when I'll be back. And anyway, I was very grateful because at that point, Curious Wine had been sitting on the shelf for I don't know, just a number of months, because you know I had finished the book, but yet I knew there was something wrong still. And uh, for all you writers out there who are familiar with the craft, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, anyway, I just getting away from the novel that I was so close to for all those many months. It gave me some distance from the book, so I opened up the manuscript and I immediately saw. That it opened in the wrong place. And Laura, I had tried, I don't know, four or five different openings where it opens with Diana and her boyfriend. It's opened with a scene with her father. It opened with a a scene with, uh, see what I mean, I can't even remember my own (laughs) character's name. But anyway, and then I saw that my two women had to meet on page one, which they do. uh, And that just seemed to reset the whole book, sent it off to Barbara and then one of the happiest days of my life was the phone call she says this is Barbara Greer at Nyad Press we would like to publish your novel <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning of everything and then in um, the novel was published on um, April 13th 1983 13 is my lucky number by the way and then there was a National Women's Studies Association convention in Columbus Ohio and I love to talk about that. It's one of the great memories of my life. It was an absolute watershed for me as a person, as a writer, as a lesbian. And it was on the campus of Ohio State University. And a great many of us, including myself, stayed on campus for the convention. And some of the women who were appearing on panels were Marge Piercy, Nikki Giovanni, Paula Marshall, Margaret Atwood. I mean, it was an absolute feast. And uh, Barbara and Donna were there. I met Lee Lynch for the first time. I met Ann Bannon for the first time. T. Corinne, who was a great photographer and did many of the covers for the Naya Press books. She was there. She photographed me, actually, at the convention, which is the photograph, which is on Daughters of a Coral Dawn. T. took that photo at that convention. And uh, anyway, in the evening, see, this is what you get for answering (laughs) questions. You just get (laughs) long-winded answers like that. Anyway, in the evening, a bunch of us would sit around, and some of us read from work that we had in progress, and Lee read uh, something from a short story that she'd done. And I was part of a writer's group in L.A. at this time, at this particular time, and I had had so much exposure to the craft, it took me three years to learn craft myself, and I had fortunately the time to be able to do that. So I just took Lee aside. And unbeknownst to me, Barbara Greer was overhearing this conversation. And I just pointed out a few things where she had a point of view shift that was kind of a craft error and stuff like that. Anyway, the upshot of it was, Laura, that because of this conversation with Lee, I flew home on the plane and I had Lee's novel, The Swashbuckler, under my arm. And it was my first edited work for Nyah Press and that's how my editing career began. <laughs> also in Columbus, Ohio. So you can just see. Fancy Bariano was there, by the way, from Firebrand Books. Margarita Donnelly from Calyx, you know, the legendary press from up up in the north. It was just a very historic conference and I don't know, you know, to be able to see Margaret Atwood wow. uh in person was uh, very, very special. Very special.
0: In fact, could I tell you a story about Margaret Absolutely. Atwood? Absolutely. You can talk all day for as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just kind
1: of triggering various memories. But there was a writer and, and book uh, reviewer named Joyce Bright, who was there from Sacramento, and, and Joyce and I kind of hooked up. And there was a panel, and the panel was on Margaret Atwood's work. So <laughs> And so they were delivering papers. I mean, a lot of academics were there. And it was very scholarly in many respects, as well as being a ton of fun. And anyway, the door opens, and who should walk in but Margaret Atwood? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought this woman delivering her paper was going to absolutely faint dead away. But anyway, she just sat down. And to her credit, the, the moderator of the panel said, could we call the author up here? And maybe would she be kind enough to answer a few questions. So Margaret Atwood very graciously got up and got on the little stage there in the meeting room. And uh, so anyway, this woman in the audience got up and she said, and she, she says, your novel, Life Before Man. And she just burbled on and on and on about the book. And she said, now tell me, what happens to these characters after the book ends? And Margaret Atwood just pierced her with this absolute laser gaze. And she said, People die and books end, <laughs> <laughs> and it was so Margaret Atwood. You know, because she's kind of legendary for being a tough interview. <laughs> I've always loved that story. I thought that was just hysterical. So anyway, so that's anyway that's a little bit of Nyad Press, but it's uh, it's legendary. I mean, it opened lesbian books to the world, really. And uh, Barbara Greer, I mean, she was a woman of her time, for her time. And believe me, Laura, she kicked doors down and she made so much stuff happen. I, I don't even know where to begin. And I'm just hoping, well, there is a biography of Barbara Indomitable that's out there that kind of gives an idea of her importance and the sheer scope of her life. She's a legend. And I don't know where you'd
0: be without her, honestly. I don't either. She is a legend among legends. What inspired you to write the Coral Dawn Trilogy? And if you were to help colonize a planet, what would your job be in that colony?
1: Well, let me say, just to begin with, that I consider the three books in the Coral Dawn Trilogy. I just rank them with my very, very best work. Those books represent, overall, the three of them, a lifetime of thinking about my gender and what's possible to us. And how they began was after I sent Curious Wine to Barbara, and she accepted the book. Uh, I knew that she was going to ask, what else have you got, which she did. I got the phone call, what else have you got? So I basically sent her three proposals. I had written uh, a couple of drafts of An Emergence of Green. I was into Amateur City, the first of the Delafield books. And I said, I have this short story that I could develop into a novel." Uh the short story itself is kind of a story because the short story is actually the very first chapter of Daughters of a Coral Don. Uh and if you separated that chapter out, it actually does work as a short story. Anyway, so that's what it was, and I sent it to Ms. Magazine and uh Ms Magazine held on to the story for months. I mean, to the extent that I probably forgot I even <laughs> sent it there. It gave up on it. Back then if you would if you sent material in, you mailed it in, and if and a rejection, they mailed it back to you. They mailed back manuscripts. That was how it was done uh, back in the 80s. So I got my short story back in the mail from Ms. Magazine, and the first page of the story, it was smudged. It had coffee rings on it, <laughs> <laughs> and there was a note on the top of it, and the note said, I fought for this story as hard as I could, and... I considered that probably the loveliest rejection I've ever had in my <laughs> writing career. So anyway, so I told Barbara that I had this short story thinking, she won't be a bit, bit interested in this, well I'll just throw it in there as just something that I possibly could do. So much to my amazement, she said, I love science fiction. I would love to see a novel from this. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, it was the most amazing journey for me. Uh, it was an absolute utter joy to write, uh, to write about strong, kick-ass women of agency, women of talent, uh, women left to their own devices, given their female nature and what they would do. I loved writing the character of Mother. She's still one of my one of my very favorite uh, characters. It took an enormous amount of research because. Uh, You know, the the thing that's always been true of the science fiction genre is probably uh, the hardest genre in terms of sales, and it has the most demanding audience. You know, because some of the most profoundly good work being done today is in the science fiction field. You know, a lot of science fiction prognostications we're living through, (laughs) which they were writing about in the 40s and 50s, as you know. Anyway, the research, you know, the nature of color, the nature of wind currents, because I wanted to create a world that was credible. And that's when I discovered one of the great side benefits of being a writer that stayed with me with the next three books, because I had to do the same sort of research, which is another story, but including the Delphi books. You just get into so many different areas of things that you would never get into if you were... Kind of an ordinary person, <laughs> you know, and not having to explore the worlds of paleontology and uh, just so so many aspects. So it was one of the uh, one of the marvelous aspects of uh, of being a writer is that I think it's uh, it's kind of expanded my just my intellectual world of making just opening up things to me. Plus the fact that it sometimes research sends you into storylines and even suggests characters. Uh, anyway, it was part of my craft learning. It was 18 years before I wrote the sequel, Daughters of an Amber Noon. Coral Dawn is wide open for a sequel, and I thought Barbara would want one uh, immediately. But no, she wanted Amateur City. She says, "I think I want to take a look at this book," and and she said, "This is going to be a series, uh, probably." And then she wanted Emergence of Green, <laughs> and then she wanted another Delafield. Anyway, in the meantime. The upshot of this is that after I sent off Coral Dawn and she accepted it, uh, I went on a field trip to Death Valley under the auspices of UCLA. They were having a weekend tour through Death Valley, and it was under the auspices of a geologist and a morphologist. And a morphologist is somebody who is an expert on land formation. And it was the most incredible weekend because... You know, Death Valley is just one of the best-kept secrets in America for a national park. There is six billion years of history in that valley. I mean, there is every geological period is represented in the hills and colors and flats and salt flats. And anyway, it's just an amazing place. And to be able to view it so that an expert could tell you and explain every single thing you looked at (laughs) was absolutely marvelous. And so a lot of that went into, uh, even though it took 18 years, it still went into Amber Noon, which is where I was, you know, always going to set the next book. So anyway, that's the story on that one.
0: With Kate Delafield, you created an unforgettable character. Over the span of 10 books, Kate takes great care to bring closure to the cases she solves while not taking very good care of herself and being ingrained to stay far in the closet, something the two of you shared. What brought you out of the closet, and did you speak with a lot of law enforcement officers who felt compelled to also remain there?
1: As I say, I was out of the closet with Curious Wine big time. She is the best thing that could have possibly happened to me as a writer. Uh, Kate allowed me to write about everything that I felt passionate about in terms of my community. She gave me the opportunity to write about issues that were most important to my community. How she started, uh, I had no idea that I was going to write a police procedural when I started Amateur City. I've always loved the mystery genre uh, and that mysteries and science fiction. I love both of those genres because um, it's where women flourished back in the day. We were not taken seriously as literary writers. I mean, Margaret Atwood wrote like five books before the New York Times deigned to notice her. I mean, that's kind of how it was. Our serious literature was really kind of mostly disregarded, except for a few exceptions. But we absolutely flourished in the genres. You know, we had great women mystery writers, which I don't even mean to name. Everybody knows who they are. Uh, so I was very much influenced about wanting to write in that genre. Plus the fact that we had Sarah Paretsky, uh, who had come out with V.I. Warshofsky who was really the first modern-day protagonist of a tough woman of agency uh, as a private detective. So Sarah, I think, really set the bar and showed us what was possible, you know, to a great many of us. And uh, anyway, the only thing I knew was that I was going to write a mystery story and I was going to set it in the business world, which is where I came from. That was another thing, too. It It just seemed to me that the business world was very underutilized in fiction, considering the fact that most of us spend a third of our lives there. So I wanted to use that. Plus the fact that I saw such abuse of power in the business world, men who had such economic power over our lives in terms of being women, in terms of being LGBT, you know, in so many ways. So I wanted to implement some of that. So anyway, Ellen O'Neill was going to be my amateur detective uh, in this book. And then, of course, then I realized, well, if I have a murder, then I have to have police. And so, you know, we're talking about the early 80s, and women had just come through the court cases, Laura. We had just earned the right to occupy the higher echelons of police work, because before we were limited, we were either in juvenile or we were jail patrons, and that was all women were allowed to do. So all of a sudden, the door opened, and I thought, I'm going to have a woman detective. So Kate Delafield walked onto the page, (laughs) and I thought, ah, here is a woman in a high-profile, high-pressure, high-visibility profession uh, in an absolutely drop-dead homophobic paramilitary organization that hated women, resented their presence in their ranks, thought that we were inferior, that we couldn't do the job. Uh, And Kate Delafield absolutely presented the very best case for being in the closet. I don't need to say more than that. So then when I made that decision and realized kind of the potential of what I had here, by the way, I did not know it was going to be a series or I probably would have made different decisions in the first book. I mean, I just thought this was going to be kind of a standalone novel. I went out, found everything that I could find on women in law enforcement. And believe me, there was almost nothing. There was a Detective series that was set in New York. Um, and again, you know, I can't ex- exactly remember who the author was. I think it was a, a cop, as I remember. Anyway, I just did the best I could. I found everything that I could find on police procedure and did the best I could. So then I went to uh, one of the gay organizations in town and I said that I know that we have gay and lesbian police officers and I said, I absolutely guarantee confidentiality. Would you find one and have them look at my manuscript? And anyway, uh, they told me that they found five, actually five, and not one of them would do it. That was the level of fear at LAPD. So needless to say, I wrote that into the series. That in itself just really told me a lot. Anyway, Barbara published Amateur City. And then about three weeks after it was published, I got a letter from a detective supervisor in Madison, Wisconsin, actually Kate's equivalent, complimenting me on the accuracy of the book, which was enormously gratifying, reassuring. Her name was and is Mary Otterson. She's retired now. And uh, so she became a consultant on some of the early books. Uh, And then Barbara also got a letter from Mitch Robeson. (laughs) She initially thought he was going to sue us because he was an actual cop. And I mentioned him in the book, one of the books, because he was the first uh, cop to actually file a discrimination suit. He's one of our early, really, really courageous pioneers who absolutely put his life on the line to do what he did. He's one of my all-time heroes. And uh, he just wanted to meet me. And so I got some of his input into the series. I became friends uh, with a police captain out of the Pacific Division who I've never identified to this day, and uh, she also gave me some input. So that was kind of how the series began in terms of your much larger question about the development of Kate. uh, The reason she was such a wonderful character for me, Laura, is because she was so closeted, and over the series. I don't know what readers get from the books. I only know what I put into them and kind of my impetus as a writer. And, you know, people react and get such different things from what you do. And Sometimes I'm kind of surprised at what people see. Sometimes people see things in the books that even I don't realize are there. And then sometimes people don't see at all what I think that they might see. <laughs> so you know, it's kind of like releasing a child into the world and who knows what they're going to do (laughs) and how they're going to make you proud or embarrass you one way or the other. But, um, you know, to me, the whole traversing of Kate's character over over the 10 books is what the closet does to us. To me, the great, great achievement of my generation is that so many of us found the courage to come out of the closet and to show our faces to the world. And I don't think Gays and lesbians of today realize the courage that it came, the pressure to conform. As I say, you risked your job, you risked, you had to be prepared to lose everything to come out. But come out, we did. And, you know, the damage that the closet does to us, it does it to us morally, spiritually, sometimes physically. And it's damaged Kate right from the get-go with parents who were embarrassed about her And that's happened to so many of us. My spouse, Joe, you know, who you just met, uh, her family, because she's so boyish, they were kept trying to turn her into a girl. You know, all of these things that happen. Uh, Kate became a Marine to try and do one thing that would make her father proud. And uh, she perceives that she needs to stay in the closet on the job, uh, and she ends up isolating herself. Usually the closest associates that police officers have Is with one another because only other cops understand the job. The job is just one of the most personally impacting professions that anybody can be in. And the fact that Kate was in the closet, she didn't have that. Uh, She didn't share what she did with her partner, you know, with Amy over all those years. She didn't have really a friend until kind of late in her career until Joe Cameron came along. She's one of these members of our community that even when the jail cell was opened, she found it hard to walk out. She was a difficult, difficult character for me to write about because so much of what she did, I didn't agree with, but she was her own person. She was somebody that angered me. She was somebody that I deeply admired because, you know, above all, Kate has a core of integrity that I think is very rare uh, in today's world. And she kind of never loses sight of that. Uh, And a lot of police officers have and do just because of the nature of the job and other things. The other thing that I was very happy about, sorry if I'm jumping all over the place here. I was happy with from the very first book, I made the decision to set the series in real time because Kate ages with the series, which is not usually very common in mystery series. Uh, You know, some writers do it. A lot of us don't. The character is kind of the same age from book to book to book. But uh, she allowed me to kind of follow the trajectory of our gay and lesbian community over those years. And they were monumentally important years. Uh, And that was another thing where I felt really blessed that I had a detective character who kind of echoed and mirrored some of the events happening to us and and for us, uh, over the period of her own career, that's kind of what what Kate's been for me. She's just been a she's been a miracle of a character. I have loved writing about
0: her, and uh,
1: I wish her the best.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just reread all ten books. I just finished book ten earlier in and in thank, a week. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Talk about a a labor. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, thank because you. I just I love her. I mean, she's frustrating. as all get out, but she's so morally strong. And- She's just one of the greatest characters we have in our genre. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you.
1: Thank you. That's music to my ears. I'm very happy to hear that because I just kind of stepped along the pathway as she did. So it's nice to get a reaction of the cumulative effect of the books.
0: Last year, the great Claire McNabb lost her battle with Parkinson's disease. You co-wrote Lethal Care with her, the final book in the Carol Ashton mystery series. How did you become friends and what made her such a great friend? I
1: edited Claire. I edited her very first book, Lessons of Murder. It's kind of interesting. Claire and I have a couple of things in common. Little did I know, uh, and little did Claire know, I got a phone call from a woman who was writing uh, some sort of a compendium on uh, mystery novels and mystery writers in her section on police procedurals. She was the one who first told me, she said, you have the first lesbian Police professional in American literature. Uh, and I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I guess it makes sense since we didn't exist until the early 80s. <laughs> uh, and as I say, I just kind of caught that wave just as it began. And, and the same thing was true with Carol Ashton for, for Claire. So Claire and I uh, have been lifelong friends and of course, uh, you know, she came down with Parkinson's disease. And one of her fond wishes was to write a final book in the Ashton series. And so Laura was uh, privileged to work with Claire. It was very difficult at times. Uh, there were days when, you know, she had a lot of trouble speaking. And it's a very cruel illness. As you know, she died a year ago, June. And... uh one of the happier moments of my life was uh, going to GCLS. I guess it was in Albuquerque. I think it was that one. And uh, Claire won a Goldie for that book. And let me tell you, it was such a wonderful, wonderful moment in my life to bring that Goldie back and present it to Claire. So there's a photograph of us somewhere on Facebook that shows that moment. And, and Claire looks so radiant. And it's one of my, my best memories of her. She was an incredibly prolific writer. She was an incredible person. She uh, taught fiction for years at UCLA. She was teacher of the year there, which is no mean feat. (laughs) She was an extraordinary woman, and I'm proud, and I was richly rewarded by knowing her.
0: When I talked with Karen Callmaker, she said that, as an editor, you are the standard by which all others are measured. How many books do you think you've edited, and what is the key to being a good editor? To the best of my
1: knowledge, I think I must have edited somewhere between four and 500 books. I've been editing for 40 years, and there were years when I edited two books a month, so, you know, you could kind of, like, do the math. <laughs> <laughs> so I edited uh, a lot of books and uh, worked with a lot of lesbian writers, which has also been a joy of my life, for sure. And it's unusual for writers to be editors, actually, because quite often the writer will try to turn the book into something that that writer would write. <laughs> and it's a matter of just really close identification with the writer so that you pick up that writer's language rhythms, you pick up her character voices. And I think the real key is that you just want the same thing that she does, which is the best possible book that she can write. Not that you can write, but that she can write. Uh, it's been a gift. It came out in my first writer's group that I have an eye for it. Uh, I think I think it is kind of a gift. I feel the same way. Everybody thinks they can proofread. Everybody thinks they can edit. Very few people can edit. Very few people can proofread. Proofreading is the goddess's gift, you know, because I've worked with proofreaders, and goodness sakes, the stuff that they catch, really good ones, it's just one of those Arcane uh, little sidetracks into our profession that just makes our books as good as they are. It's uh, it's the writer's book, obviously, but uh, there is a team behind
0: the writer that helps to get it out there into the world. Who is your favorite supporting character from one of your books? Oh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to pick, mm-hmm.
1: but uh, at this point, I might pick oddly enough Joe Cameron. I love just the easy friendship between a straight guy. Uh, and a lesbian, and the mutual respect, his admiration for her, and how kind of understated it is, but yet it's so obvious that he just loves her to death.
0: <laughs> yes, he does
1: <laughs> and uh, and I also loved Mother, as I mentioned from uh, from Daughters of a Coral Don. So probably those two might uh, I have to say too I love Maggie from the Delafield series too that the owner of the the Nightwood Bar, the Nightwood Bar kind of pervades the the series. The murder at the Nightwood Bar is kind of a keystone book in the in the series when Kate actually connects with her community. And Maggie is the one person in Kate's life who really does tell her like it is, and uh, Kate hears her even if she doesn't
0: act on it. <laughs> so, yeah, I love Maggie. She's <laughs> definitely she, favorite. She's definitely the Greek chorus in the books. <laughs> In July 2008, you married your wife, Jo. How did you meet, and did you ever think you would be able to legally marry the woman you love?
1: Well, just kind of very briefly, Joe and I first connected on a visit that I made to Australia back in the early 90s, and uh, and then she uh, came to the United States on an international transfer, and we reconnected in L.A., and it's 32 years later. Here we are. And I've often, well, I like to say these days that i Probably would have been happier to go out in the Obama administration than witness what's happened since. <laughs> but which was kind of the highlight of my life in the United States. But uh, I'm glad that I lived long enough to marry Joe. That was unimaginable in my early life. And a question like yours, Laura, is even though we have so many headwinds facing us now, we have come such a distance. And the most powerful thing that's happened to our community is the fact that we did come out, that we found each other, that we have a community. The important thing is that that we are unified and that we are proud of the fact that ours is the only subculture in the world that incorporates all races, all colors, all creeds, all genres. That is a strength, and uh, it is the world as it should be. <laughs> and uh, Hopefully, the rest of the allegedly civilized universe will one day catch up with the groundbreaking community that we have been and are, and hopefully will always
0: continue to be. Yes, absolutely. You have lived in California for many years. What do you love about living there?
1: Certainly the political climate. I recognize that uh, we live in a bubble inside a bubble. I'm living in Palm Springs, California, which is possibly the gayest city on earth. I, I live in a brand new development which is nothing but LGBT seniors 55 plus so i'm living with my family and it's a beautiful place to, to live and it's uh, california is as i understand it i think that we are maybe the eighth largest economy in the world so our state must be doing something right with all the progressive governance that we <laughs> have so i hope that la continues to be a
0: cutting edge city as does san francisco so May it long continue. I'm just a few years away, so I could move to that little community there. Pretty soon we can be neighbors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be wonderful. Well, do come out and visit. Okay, I'll
0: I'll make a plan to do that.
1: Okay, that would be wonderful. I'd love to spend some time with you. Not that you don't know everything about me. I, I'm going to have nothing to talk about, so I can talk about you. <laughs> okay, I love to talk about myself.
0: <laughs> what is your favorite meal in the event that I invite you to Missouri for dinner?
1: Well, uh, make it Thanksgiving because I love Thanksgiving dinner. Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> so we'll just have the regulars. You like the turkey, all the all the trimmings, pie.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Gravy, dressing, rolls. Oh, pie. What's your favorite pie? <laughs> pumpkin, of course. Okay.
0: That's not mine, but it's okay. I'll make you a pumpkin. I'm a chocolate pie oh, girl.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that would be all right. Okay. Excellent. Nothing wrong with chocolate.
0: <laughs> Tell me two things about you that may come as a surprise to the listeners. Well... I don't know. I'm a big baseball fan, always have been. Favorite team? Uh, The San Francisco Giants. Well, we'll forgive you for that because we're the Cardinals here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got there. It was first the Detroit Tigers and then it was the L.A. Dodgers. And Joe and I lived in San Francisco for 14 years. And, and, uh, you know, we had a few World Series came out of our team. So it's kind of hard to let the Giants go. That's the only interesting, semi-interesting thing I can think of.
0: (laughs) We have met at the last two GCLS conferences. You're always so gracious and welcoming to readers and authors as they share what your books mean to them. Could you ever have imagined years later the impact your words would have on so many?
1: Never. I've compared notes with writers like Lee Lynch and Alan Hart and, you know, just the various ones that I've just, you know, because we just sort of put our heads down and we did our work. And getting back to, to your wonderful questions about the Kate Delafield series. I think Kate Delafield personifies that immortal line from Shakespeare, to thine own self be true, because um, it just makes a huge difference in terms of the life you lead and the life that you look back on and the things that you might regret or not regret, the things that you're proud of. So to all of my LGBT family, to thine own self be true, and we are stronger together.
0: Catherine, thank you, not just for spending this time with me, but for all you've done for this community. We all owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. My partner described your writing as a lifeline for her, and I know many others feel the same. Thank you. It's truly been an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward
1: to your visit.
0: Okay, we'll plan it. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to the legendary Catherine V. Forrest for joining me. Catherine's books can be purchased on the Bella Books website or at Amazon. To support this podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash sapphiclora.